But life continued and continued. I got busy. Work, family, responsibilities, and activities have all increased. Some of these are very important things, though, vital things. They are parts of who God has called me to be. But have they crept in and replaced God's word and the time I used to spend there? Honestly, not entirely, no. Many of the activities and responsibilities I'm speaking of require that I spend time in God's word. I read Bible stories to my young kids at night at bedtime. I prepare lessons for the four, five, six boys class I co-teach. However, there's been a difference. It really hasn't been in regard to what I read or maybe even how often I read, but rather in why. I haven't found myself pursuing God's word out of a passion and desire of encountering the creator of the universe or for hearing the words of my risen savior or for openly hearing of how God might be speaking to me. The time I spend in the word tends to be out of obligation or preparation for a lesson or finding an answer to a question, etc. But I'm not saying I'm not saying that this is this has been wasted by any means, nor that God hasn't used it. But I want to know I want more. I want more for my family, for my kids, to know the richness of God's love behind the stories. I know that they hear hear that here. In fact, they're hearing it the very this very morning as we uh, continue to work deeply through the book of Acts with the kids' classes. But I want to make that more of a priority in my home as well. And I want God's word to light my path daily. So actively renewing my passion for scripture and prioritizing it in my life is how I've heard the Lord calling me to rise up and build in my own life and in my home and with my family. Please pray for me as I endeavor to lead my family in this way. Also, pray how you might seek the Lord, how the Lord is calling you to rise up and build in your, in your life as well. Thanks for that, Josh. How is God calling you to rise up and build? As one of our elders, Josh has set an example, I think one that we could follow um, in that. And I would encourage you to consider to ask vulnerably, God, what are you doing? And, and how can I be faithful to that? This morning, we're going to be jumping into a big, big, big passage of Scripture, chapters 7 and 8 in our Nehemiah study. I'd ask that you'd open your Bibles now, turn on those apps, put away Facebook, Let's get into this text together. I'll give you a little preface while you're going there. There's so much here, and, and we're not going to cover you know, everything. You may be familiar with these passages. Some of these, some of these verses might be very special to you, I, I'd imagine, and we might miss them, but it's not for anything other than time. Let's sit together with the Word and continue to chew on it after these spaces. But uh, for time's sake, let's just dig in. So hopefully you're there, Nehemiah chapter 7, starting with verse 1. Read it, follow along with me. I love that sound, by the way, those Bibles opening. It's one of my favorite sounds in the world. When the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and then while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own houses. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. 
and no houses had been rebuilt. We're going to stop there. So what's happening here, uh, we, we got a glimpse of this last week when Don uh, preached chapter 6, but the wall is built. The task is done. Nehemiah, as you call from last week, spent 52 days along with the Israelites to build this wall. But don't forget, he, he spent four months, over twice the time, just praying about it. So he's in it about six months at this point, and he could say, God be praised, I'm going back. But he didn't. He, he saw that there was still need. We, we see in this, in this passage here that in verse 4, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. What good is a wall to defend an empty city? So Nehemiah's got a burden. He realizes that the task is complete, but his service is not done. We also get a glimpse of this, too, with, with the appointing of the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites. These are temple workers, and some of them are being spread out through the entire city to act as guards. Now, I don't know about you, but especially as a worship pastor, there's nothing that gives me more security than knowing there's a whole bunch of singers getting my back. Um, I think I'd rather have the Marines, but um, nonetheless... It's not like the singers are stepping forward and saying, okay, Nehemiah, I can't, the dust of the wall is affecting my vocal cords. I'm going to have to sit this guard thing out. They get to work. And there's a point here that I want us to lean into as we start is the task is done, but our service is never done. Do you look at ministry that way? When you consider your own service, how God may have equipped you, the question might linger of, I don't know how God has equipped me. That's okay. Get to work. The singers certainly probably weren't gifted to be guardsmen, but they were faithful. God said, get to work, and they got to work. Is God speaking to you that the task is complete and then making, having you rest with saying, okay, I'm good? Maybe you served at another church and you got burned in that service, and I'm so sorry because that does happen, but I'd still encourage you, get to work. These these men and, uh, that are mentioned here, the gatekeepers, the Levites, the, the singers, and the singers would have been men and women as well. Um, they got to work, and they were burned. They were under threat of death, but they served. Do you serve with that same intentionality? Maybe, maybe for you, uh, you came here from a previous church where your gift of mercy was in spades, and you were able to partner with your church to help a, with the food bank that maybe the church did. And you look at fellowship and you say, well, we don't have a food bank, so I'll just wait until that gets established and I'll jump back in. You finish the task at one church, but the service has gone dormant. I'd encourage you to rethink of how God might use you here. I, th I think of our youth group here. Uh, they, I didn't prepare them for this, but um, can I have all my high school girls just raise your hand real quick? Not all of you are here, but there's a few of you. There's, there's more than that in the actual group. Do you know that right now, we have one faithful woman serving all of our high school students. There's a need there. Women that are mature and wise, I would encourage you to consider how you might rise up and build and step into this ministry and partner with these young women to see them grow and be discipled in Christ. Maybe that's how God's calling you to rise up and build. Maybe you need to get out of these chairs and come to the loft on Wednesday. Talk to Pastor Slate about that. Your task might have been complete elsewhere, but the service is never done. I think that's the first thing we can lean into, and we see this continue with Nehemiah's words. Read this with me in, in verse 5. It says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. 
And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found it written, and, and what he finds written is a, is a long genealogy. And we'll get to that part in a minute, but, but did you catch this, this little phrase here in verse 5? Then my God put it on my heart. Up to this point, we've seen Nehemiah to be a faithfully praying man. Again, he, he spent about four months praying for this project before he even went to the, the king of Persia to say, hey, can I help them rebuild? And we've seen his prayers throughout this passage where he's, he's praying, Lord, strengthen my hands for the work. And, and he's also praying, Lord, all those things that Sanballat and Tobiah and our enemies are saying, can, can you flip onto them what they're saying about me? He's a praying man, and in this moment, in God putting it onto his heart, we get a glimpse of that conversation being two-way. Now, we know God has already put things on his heart to, to pursue this wall project in the first place, but now we get this glimpse of this intimate relationship. God put it on my heart. And, and friends, I, I, I wonder if you're sensitive, if we are sensitive enough to even know that God was putting something on our heart. While he can invade our lives in grace and, and knock us over like with this billboard of a message, a lot of times that conversation we don't hear because we don't engage. Are you praying and seeking the Lord in such a way that might invite this conversation, that God might put something on your heart? That's totally different than what you thought. Nehemiah went to go thinking he's building a, a bridge, or pardon me, building a wall. That got done. But God was saying, I have more for you. And he pressed his heart. Are you leaning in that way? Are you listening to the Lord in that way? I, I hope so. Because I, I believe that sometimes he will call us out of our comfort zones to grow us. Are we willing to be obedient? And, and that's what, what Nehemiah does. He, it's not like God said, I want you to start a church. And he says, I can do that in this noble task. He says, I want you to find a list of the people. It's going to take a little bit of time, but find this list, this genealogy. And there's a practical purpose. Practically, the city's empty, so Nehemiah's finding a list of the people who have a right to be there, and he's going to be calling on them to come back. But there's also the obedience. Nehemiah, what we see here is a first step, of, for a lot of us, of worship. Here at FBC, we define worship as responding rightly to who God is and what he's done. We don't know who he is and what he's done unless we see him revealed in his word, see him in the conversations and hear him in the conversations with other believers in prayer, unless we open our eyes and see him through his creation. But we have an opportunity to respond to that. And Nehemiah does that. You see that God put it in his heart in verse 5 to pursue this genealogy. And what he does is finds the genealogy. Obedience is an act of worship. Worship is not just the music, those three songs that we sang before Josh got up here this morning. Worship is responding rightly to who God is and what he's done. And we're going to see a lot of worship in this passage before we even get to any singing. I hope that, that we're leaning into that. But then he goes into this long genealogy from verse 7 to 73. Uh, can you raise your hand if you'd like me to read that whole genealogy? It's hard for us. We don't connect with genealogies, but I'm going to offer a starting point, maybe a, maybe a foundation for how to approach genealogies so that we don't miss the value that it is in Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed, right? It's profitable, valuable to us for teaching us, for blaming us. The word in some of your passages might say reproof when you look up that verse. 
So for teaching us, for, for blaming us, for correcting us, and training us up in righteousness. That's the value of the whole of Scripture. So I know that when I read this genealogy, I can expect that God would teach me something about who he is and what he's done. He's going he's gonna to blame me, possibly, and that's sometimes that conviction. He's going to be gracious to correct me if there is something wrong about my approach to who he is and what he's done, and he's going to train me in righteousness. So even if this is a genealogy that I don't quite connect with, I can see value in it, trusting that God is going to be faithful to his word by teaching, blaming, correcting, and training me, right? So I want you to have eyes to see that as well. I'm not going to read the whole genealogy, uh, not only for time's sake, but to spare you my lack of ability in pre- pr- pronouncing so many names that I would never name my children. Um, so here, here's where I think it, it, it starts to matter. Here's what we see in this passage. Now, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? He seems to know people. People seem to matter to God. At least they even put it in the scriptures. Do you know that you matter to God? Do you know that when you read a genealogy of names that you don't understand and numbers by those names representing a group of people that you've never met that are long dead, that that same God who loved them and put them to work and wants to honor them by even listing them in scriptures is the same God that knows and loves you intimately? It's the same God. So when we look at something like this genealogy, we know that God's paying attention to us. We know, that I'm, I'm going to take it, this is really just a random, a random thing. I, I don't know what verse this is, but I'm going to look at verse 34. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. That whole family of Elam, God knows every person, that 1,254. God knows who they are, and he knows every one of you intimately well. And you matter to him not because you're popular or you're rich or you attend church or read your Bible, whether it's out of obligation or joy, but he loves you because, and you matter to him because he's made you matter to him. It's his desire for you. But I wonder, there's something here in this genealogy that I think is timely that, that I want to point your attention to. Wouldn't you turn with me to chapter 7, verse 61? It's a burden on my heart that we lean into this and really respond to this. In this whole list of people that have a right to be there, Verse 61 says, The following were those who came up from Tel-Malel, Tel-Harsha, Cherub, Adam, and Immer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor the descent, whether they belonged to Israel. They're like, hey, we, we, we talk the talk. We can kind of walk the walk. But they can't prove it. They come, and, Isra- and, and, and Ezra, Nehemiah, these people, they're looking at this list, and they're like, you're not in. And they had to put them away. Now, they didn't say you'll never get in necessarily, but they said you're not in. It's more important to do things the way God has led us to do them than to try to come in a back door. Let that sink in a little bit because that's the same with our faith. It's only through Christ that we come to the Father, right? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yet, not all of us or in that boat. There was a study I came across um, a couple of years ago. I don't remember if it was the Barna Group or Gallup Poll or something like that, but it suggested that on average in America, 
of you, regular church attenders, are not saved, are not Christian. In conversations with our pastors and, and being here at the buckle of the Bible Belt, essentially, I'd suggest that percentage is higher. Now, with, with a number in this room, just statistically speaking, that means 30 to 50 of us need Jesus. Let that sink in. That would be as if I said, everyone in this section here is not saved. How would you respond to that? Would that response be a yearning and urging to pray for them and to disciple them? Or is it like we often do, just assume that they're in because they're here? Being here won't save you. This sermon won't save you. Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 10, there's two things that are necessary for salvation. One is that we confess that Jesus is Lord, and two, that we believe that God raised him from the dead. Have you done that? There are implications. There's, there's, there's subtext in that, of course. By confessing Jesus is Lord, you're saying that you're not. Have you done that? Would, you, would your family members be surprised if, if you did that? Would they see something different in you if all of a sudden you said Jesus is Lord as a part of your pattern of speech? If you're not there, I would, consider, I would encourage you to consider that. But Paul also says belief that God raised him from the dead. This is also the belief that it's a necessary death. That you, apart from Christ, were going to hell. But in him, in his death, you can be reunited with the Father in heaven forever. But so often we think coming to church, regularly tithing, maybe your help setting up chairs at a men's breakfast is enough. And friend, it's not. I beg you to consider whether or not you're in because it matters. And I beg you to consider whether or not you're willing to confess Christ because it matters. And in fact, as I go on my sermon, if that's you, if the Spirit's tugging at your heart, I want to see that hand raise up. I'll stop everything. We will celebrate with you if you come to Jesus. Names matter to God. Do you see how you matter to God? Now, there's more that could be said about that. The people put together a big gift financially in the multi-millions of dollars. A lot of questions for me arise on that. Where did they get the money? Where did that all happen? Uh, is this blood money? Is this, did they loot the temple before they went into exile? There's a lot of questions there, but nonetheless, they were generous with it to give it back. When we get to chapter 8, here. Follow along with me. Chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man. This would have been over 40,000 people. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and all who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood up on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him, he had six men to his right, seven men to his left. Verse 5, he says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. 
And as he opened the book, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their face to the ground. We're going to stop there. So the people gather. And they're not like, hey, let's have a party. The wall's done. They saw the task as a vehicle for something more. And I think we ought to do that too. Do you see serving at VBS this summer as a task and you're done? Or do you see it as a vehicle to shepherd our young people, our kids, into a deeper relationship with Jesus? Do you see it as a vehicle to give some reprieve to the parents, um, you know, who who are struggling to to get this message of Christ to their own children? Or do you just see it as the task? They saw it as a vehicle, and they they said, hey, get Ezra over here. We want to hear the Bible. And so he does, and they're they're attentive. And and Ben was helpful to to remind us of that uh, earlier on. They were attentive. They were leaning in. So you're going to see a lot of posture in this passage. It was, it's like they got together and they're kind of, okay, we're ready for it. Are you ready for it? And Ezra gets up there. Now, they, we know he built a wall, and they also know apparently they built a tower for him to climb up on. And so he's literally placing the word of God, not unlike we do here, a few feet above the people. There's a sense of submission, being willing to sit under the authority of the word of God that's pictured here. Do you live your life that way? Do you look and say, I, I think it's good to, to love people and, and be so generous with our love that it means loving and allowing and affirming sin? Because it would be unloving to tell them not to. That's not what they're doing. They're submitting to the authority of the Scripture so that when Scripture says for their life, hey, living that way is a problem, they say, okay, Lord, I'm going to obey So they're attentive, they're sitting under the teaching, but when they open the book, they stand. And you'll see us do that sometimes. And we'd love to do it all the time, but I want to spare you just in this this moment, um, because they they were there for a five or six hour sermon. How do you like that? Um, Applebee's might be booked up by that point. Um, But it was this, this sense of hunger I love what Josh shared earlier, just this renewing of a hunger for the word of God. What we sang about, speak, O Lord, that your word would be a food to me. Do you hunger for the word in this way? And and so Ezra, as he's opening the Bible, before he even gets to what it says, he blesses the Lord. He makes the Lord happy, his great God. And they're really behind it. Amen, amen. There's this emphasis. But I want you to notice a couple things. It's not individual. It's not just like one dude over there saying amen, amen in the background. Just because he came from a Pentecostal church and now goes here. But it's this, it's this collective, this joint, this together worship starting with responding to God. God, he is showing up by making it safe for them to even have a Bible study with 40,000 people. Amen, amen. And again, you'll see these postures. First this leaning in, this attentive, and then they lift their hands. Now we do that. You see that sometimes with some of the more courageous folks. Um, And it's a sense of surrender. We see it on movies, and it looks like this, and it's a don't shoot, right? But it has the same kind of meaning. I surrender. I'm I'm ready for you to be in charge. I'm not going to fight you. The sense of lifted hands. And, and then their faces to the ground. And it's almost like, okay, Lord, we're ready. 
you're in control, and it's like it starts to hit them because we're seeing some posture here that's spread out over five or six hours of hearing the word. God, you're in charge. I'm nothing. God, who am I that I'm even alive before you? And they get down. And, and, and where it says bow down and worship, bow down in Scripture is almost always followed by and worshiped. That doesn't mean bow down, pick up a guitar, and start singing kumbaya. It's worship. It's responding to who God is and what he's done in a way that blesses him. They're worshiping. But when we are confronted by the word of God, we ought to be cut deeply to the heart. Now, I know that the Israeli people, the Jews, they, at least at this time, were far more expressive emotionally. And we might feel like, oh, I came from a Baptist background. We sit on these hands and they fit good right there. And we don't raise them. That's okay, but I would suggest if our hearts are not leaning in to revere, to honor the word of the Lord, to, to, to surrender to what God has for us and to who he is, if our hearts are not leaning into this, oh boy, I'm nothing before you, God, then maybe you do need to change your posture, regardless of what your body's doing in there. But the people respond and worship, and it gets even better. I think it gets better. There's this list of, uh, of several teachers, pastors. Verse 7, tail end of 7, it says, And they helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the, book of, uh, from the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. You see what's happening with that. So you got 40 plus thousand people scattered across near the, the water gate. And Ezra reads this scroll. It says the book of the law, but it, it would have been a scroll. Books, as we know, wouldn't have been popular for another six, seven hundred years. So he's got this scroll and he reads it. And, and we saw earlier in verse 2 about how people were gathered, men, women, and all who could understand. This would have indicated uh, most likely children, people who could comprehend the words. But they weren't satisfied with just reading it and saying, God bless you, go home. These, these pastors, these Levites, go into the people. They, hey, did, did you catch that? They're having small group. There's such an incredible value for meeting together as a group of people to, to be able to say, yeah, I don't get it. Can you run that genealogy idea again? Because it's over my head. It's safe to dialogue. And these teachers are saying, okay, this is what we're saying here. Do you get it? Or, or how did the word hit you? What, what, how are you processing it? And we're not asking, what does the Bible mean to me? That's not a really good question to start with when we look at the scriptures. But they're saying, did you see God in that? Did, did you see what he's saying? Do you, do you see who he is? And we have evidence that they clearly saw who he is. But this, this care and this grace to be able to go and minister and have those conversations. It says where it, these leaders went to their places. It's not like the people gathered, they preached, and they said, okay, if you don't understand, you can take a number and come up and ask questions. It was more important that they understood it, that, the, that these pastors went to them. I think that's telling about the conversation, about how we ought to approach the hearing of God's word. I think our English translations are quite sufficient. We don't need to know the Hebrew and Greek. While it is a help, we don't need that to know who God is and what he's done. So get your nose in the Bible. Be about that. And so, so they have these, these postures, these, these, these responses, 
and, and the sense is given to them. And, and part of that, too, don't forget, we've, we've got a people group who's been in exile for 70 years, two generations. Some of them don't know Hebrew. Practically speaking, you've got, you got a, a bilingual ministry going on. Again, it would have included kids, included women. It's not just a boys' club. This is a multi-generational, bi-gender, multilingual conversation. Is that how we look at a church? Or do we say, I'm going to only hang out with the people I like, that look like me, that talk like me, that drive the same car as me, whatever it is. I would encourage you even just to apply this in a sense to be the church, that you in the back over here would get to know the youth up here, and in our Encore group would get to know our, the Turno students and, and in more meaningful ways. We see this family, this togetherness, this body of worshipers together as they receive the sense of the word. And it was okay for any of them to say, yeah, I don't get it. Can you help me? So I wonder, are you helping others know the word? Uh, uh, Josh, I'm going to pick on you again. You know, this, rising up and build so that his family could know the word. That's one step. Are you helping others know the word? Maybe, maybe you've been in Christ for a long time and you feel like, oh, I'm no good as a teacher. I could never do X, Y, and Z. But we got kids in the treehouse that need you. We got parents of those kids that need you so that they can grow as well here. Many hands make light work, and we have these needs, and I would encourage you to lean into them and see how God might use you upon hearing this word. But it goes on, verse 9, follow along with me here. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught all the people, said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. They understood what they were hearing. They saw who they were in light of a holy God, and it broke them. It broke them. They were weeping. And there will be a time for us to mourn about who we are our, in our sin, and, and there, there'll be a need for confession. We're going to uh, go there next week with the following chapter. But right now, they're saying, no, 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 rejoice. Because while you see who you are, it's not about you. You only see who you are because of how good he is. So let's celebrate that first. Today, we're going to celebrate. And the, the charge to them, I mean, how many of you would be pleased to know that responding by eating the best, drinking the best, and being generous is an act of worship? Amen? Right? I like me a good steak. Red meat is one of my love languages. And you know, just being able to sit and celebrate God's goodness. Now, don't forget, there's a famine going on. So to even be challenged to eat the best is, is saying, trust God to provide for you. He's got your back. Today we celebrate. And if you have extra, be generous. Let your worship, let the way that you respond to who God is and what he's done pour out and become something for other people to be blessed by. Yes, it had to do with food in this example. But how many times have you been crawling into church on Sunday morning, tired, it's been a long week, you're working hard, and you 
frankly don't feel like being here. And you see somebody who you know is in the same boat as you and they're just loving Jesus. Have you ever been encouraged by that? Has their worship been a generosity to feed you? I hope so. That should happen. That's, that's why you'll see that we have the lights on during the worship service now. So we can engage that because it's not those of us on the platform and a dark room. It's a body of believers coming together. My hope is that you are encouraged by that, but that you're leaning in and seeing that you contribute to that as well. It's not just what you receive. It's not how you feel. And, and as, as your worship pastor and in ministry for a lot of years, I've, I've, I've heard a lot of excuses and reasons, valid reasons. I'm so frustrated. The kids were fighting in the van as I was driving here, and I'm here, and I don't feel like singing. I don't like that song. I don't feel like singing. I don't, I've got stuff to do today. I've got to do the yard, and the family's coming over, and blah, blah, blah. I don't feel like listening to the Word of God. Well, friends, God doesn't ever change. And he's worthy regardless of how we feel. Sing. You're commanded to do so by Scripture. The second most frequent command in all of Scripture is sing to the Lord. Oh, but I'm no good and I'm worried that people are going to make fun of my crooked voice or whatever. Well, you know, the first most popular command is along the lines of fear not. Don't worry about it. So you have no excuse. Sing to the Lord. Give to the Lord. Oh, but money's tight, and I'm not sure if we're going to be able to make that payment. Trust Jesus. Be faithful first. Don't be reckless. It's not necessary. There is a balance between faithfulness and foolishness. But trust the Lord. Like he, these people were being called to, eat the best. Trust the Lord. And in all of this, this brokenness, they go home. You see in verse 12, their response, their worship and all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions, that is to be generous, and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the first time in two chapters that we see anything about actually singing. Five times in chapter 7 mentions the singers, but they're not singing. They're serving even though their task is either not yet or already done. This is the first time we see this rejoicing, this song, this celebration, and it is a good, good thing. And it's not because the wall is complete, it's because they heard the word of God. The word affects us and it should affect us. It goes on. We're wrapping up, we're getting close. Um, they, they want more. You see all these teachers, the leaders, the fathers of these houses, they come back to Ezra and say, hey, we want, we want more. Can you give me the Bible? They, they went there just to study the Bible. I think that's really cool, by the way. Not just because I'm a pastor, but I, I, I just have this picture of like, uh, Ezra's trying to get some sleep or something. Maybe, maybe he's just like trying to unwind like a lot of us pastors after a Sunday morning. And people come to your house and it's like, hey, uh, can you read that again? Now, I, I'm going to put a challenge out there. Uh, some of you are very competitive, I, I understand. And so... Here's the challenge. I dare you to out-eat the Word of God. I dare you to be in the Word so much that you're just nauseous of it. I don't think that you can get there, personally. I think the more that you get in, the more you want. And there's nothing that stops us. Nothing that says, okay, Sunday's all you get. You don't want to overeat on this one. So are you eating on Monday? 
Are you eating the word of God? Are you, are you in? And we're not just talking about checking off a box and reading your Bible or doing, a, doing an app. We're talking about actually engaging it, like what Josh was talking about earlier. Rising up and building, being in the word, and saying, I know God because of what he's revealed, not because of what I feel. Are you in the word that way? The people wanted this. They, they do realize that there's a feast mentioned in the scriptures that Ezra read that were supposed to happen in the seventh month. We, we learned earlier in verse 2 that they were, in fact, at the beginning of the seventh month, and they said, we ought to do that. What's stopping us from doing that? What's stopping us from, from being obedient to what God has called us to do? And they party because God told them. I think that's really cool. Like, you know, okay, God, I'll go party. You know, I'll be obedient and worship through partying. Um, and they're, they're, it's not self, um, self-centered, self-seeking kind of party. It's a celebration for God's faithfulness and what he's done in his provision. And he's revealing himself consistently to them in these moments. And so while we can't break down a lot of what this feast is for time's sake, um, I will suggest that the, here in verse 18, and day by day from the first day to the last, he, Ezra, read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly. You remember earlier, they, they, wanted to, they were weeping. Not just wanted to weep, they were weeping because of who they were in light of a holy God. And the leader said, not yet. They didn't say not ever. It's not okay to just stuff that guilt and stuff that shame. Allow the Holy Spirit to work that out for God's glory in you. Celebrate who God is. And, and, and I think about this as, as the call for those of you that 30 to 50 in this room who need Jesus. I'm not asking you to modify your behaviors, to quit looking at that stuff online. I'm not asking you to do that. I think the Spirit of God is a better voice to ask that of you. I'm asking you to come to Jesus, and we want to celebrate with you as heaven celebrates with even a single sinner coming to faith. Behavior modification isn't going to save you. I, I, now, that said, there's the hard call of trusting Jesus and, and saying, okay, God, again, I confess you as Lord, which means I'm not, which means he might say, hey, put that bottle away. It's not doing you any favors. Hey, go apologize in that relationship because it, it was you that messed up. Even if you know that they're not going to accept that apology, do right by me. I'm going to grow your soul with it. Maybe it is turning off that, those particular movies or those particular vices and the ways that we try to escape from having to deal with life. It's not easy, but it is good. We celebrate with you. Come to Jesus. So as, as we wrap up, in, in these ideas, this idea of like service and task, I would challenge you to consider. And I would, I would love to say, okay, take a week, sit on it, and come back next week and let us know. We, I mean, we're going to have opportunities to connect as a church. We have, a, we have five teams that are launching um, where you can be a part of the growth and development of this church. Yeah, consider that. But I'm not going to say a week. I want you to think about this today because the reality is Monday's coming, and you might be a little distracted. What do you do today to respond, to rise up and build to what God might be putting on your heart? Be faithful with it and say, okay, God, I'm going to do it even if the task has been completed in your life. If you're breathing, you can be serving. So get to work. Do you know that you're loved by God? 
if you are as a believer in Jesus, when you look at like a genealogy found in chapter 7, consider that God knows your neighbor who needs Jesus. And he might be using you, challenging you, to engage that, to have a conversation there. Will you rise up and build and share the gospel with your neighbor? And it might start by just saying, hey, can I help you mow your lawn? might start by just saying, hey, I want to come over for a cup of iced coffee as the summer sits in. might be, hey, did you see the game last night? But start that conversation. And when you hear God's word, are you letting it challenge you? So the challenge here is to, to offer a frame of mind that you would ask yourself this one question um, when you come into any service. Or maybe, maybe, maybe a statement, maybe, maybe a prayer. Maybe that's, that's a little more accurate. God, show me who you are and change me by your word. It's a dangerous prayer. It's the kind of prayer that might change the look and the culture of Longview itself, maybe our world. It's a prayer that, that seems like a pebble going into a pond that creates ripples and effects far and wide that we will never see. But will you be faithful to say, God, will you change me because of your word. That's my prayer for you. Will you pray with me this morning in that regard? God, thank you for this word. Thank you for the difficulty of understanding a Jewish culture as we sit here as evangelical Christians in the 21st century. Help us by your spirit to know your word and to put aside our own feelings to trust what's true. God, for those who are serving faithfully already in this church, I pray that you would give them a reprieve, help them persevere. But for, for those many in this church that are sitting on the sidelines or just waiting, I pray that you would challenge them, that we would just get out of these beige seats and get to work for your glory. And that you would grow us, that you would be faithful to sharpen us in our souls by that service. But Lord, help us to get active now. God, for those in this room who have come here for years and maybe feel silly because maybe they don't know you and they feel ashamed to say so, Lord, would you give them boldness to step out, to play, proclaim Christ out loud, to confess him as Lord? And would you help them and grow their faith that they would believe that you did indeed rise Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago for us? Lord, let us be so affected by your word every time we hear it, that we have this expectation that you're going to say something and that we need it. Would you give us that kind of hunger, Lord? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John, thank you for teaching us from God's Word and stepping all over my toes this morning. I want to ask those who are going to help us with the offering, if you would come forward and begin to serve us, please, and the worship team. Guys, come on up, back up on the stage. I've got four things I want to say to you. Oh, first of all, welcome. If you're here for the first time, I'm Pastor Sam, uh, the interim lead pastor here. So glad you're here. We'd love to get to know you. There's a connection desk outside. You've got a little gift we'd like to give to you if you're here for the first or second time. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. Four things. Number one, save the date for Vacation Bible School. You'll see it there, second full week of July. And you can already get registering, begin to register with your children. Number two, Father's Day is next week. Let's have all the 
dads, kind of raise your hand for a moment. All right, Father's Day next week. We're also going to have family dedication. So if you've got a child or children that you'd like to participate in family dedication, you can register about that. But you need to take care of that today if you could. Third thing, for six months, a transition team has been working to come up with, after assessing where we are as a church, looking at areas of health and areas that, not are, that are not so healthy. We've come up with seven different recommendations, one for all of us, three for elders, three for the congregation. And so we're going to invite you who are part of the church here, regular attenders, members, to join one of five different focus teams. Let me just kind of tell you what those are. They're to implement the recommendations that have come from our transition team. First one is this. It's a connecting team, learning, finding ways, implementing ways to strengthen our fellowship with one another. Here's a second team. It's serving and outreach, finding ways for, for us to discover how God wired us, our design, how that we can serve Him, the kinds of things that John was talking about, how we can love others well. There's a third team. It's the discipleship team, finding ways we can more effectively lead people into a vital and growing relationship with the Lord Jesus. There's a fourth team. It's the prayer team because unless we are totally dependent upon the Lord and the outpouring of His Spirit, um, we labor in our own strength. We don't accomplish a whole lot for the kingdom of God. And there's a fifth team, and that's the stewardship financial team. Anyone who has been in church for any time at all knows that ministry takes money. And it's it's helping each helping ourselves and helping each other to learn how to maximize the gifts that God has given to us. If you'd like to find out more information about one of these teams, you can do that online. You can go to speak to the folks who are out at the desk outside. I need you. I need you to join one of these teams. It is an opportunity not just to investigate, but to implement some things that are going to move us toward greater health as a church. That's number three. Number four is we began new life groups uh, this morning, you can see those. I led a group, How to Share Your Faith in a Natural Way, uh, a men's life group uh, for guys growing in Christ. Slade, one of our pastors, is leading a group in how to feed yourself spiritually. How to not lean so much on others, but how can I feed myself spiritually? Discover your gifts. John Livingston leads that. Finding the way God wired you, put you together, how he shaped you. A young married and family group began this morning, and then a a group on how to manage the resources, the money that God has given to us. It's not too late to get involved in one of these four-week classes. So next week will be number two. Let's stand together and let's practice what John has told us. Let's worship the Lord.